1: Let's mix it up, change it up, and dominate.
0: And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double
1: world record holder, Rob Moore. Hello, and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. It's producer Harry here. So on the show today, we have none other than billionaire entrepreneur, Jeff Hoffman. Jeff is a serial entrepreneur. He has started many different companies, built scaled and founded all sorts of companies in lots of different industries. Uh, Some of his most popular companies that he's known for, Priceline.com, UBid.com, ColorJam, amongst a lot of other companies. He's also published some books, he's produced some films, um, and he's dabbled with a bit of music producing as well. This guy does a little bit of everything. Multi-talented guy. So Rob and Jeff have a real good debate and conversation about these disruptive times, And Jeff reveals what opportunities right now that you, the listeners, you guys listening, invent that you guys can start, that you guys can seize the opportunities that are out there. Because Jeff really gets into some real good details on what you know entrepreneurs, the problems we have right now that entrepreneurs can solve. And these lead to the great business opportunities of the decade. So I found this an absolute fascinating conversation. I'm sure there's absolutely a wealth of information you guys can take away from this. So there is loads to come in the next few weeks on the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. We've got loads of interviews coming every single week. So make sure you stay tuned. There's a whole bunch of content coming your way. This is only just the start of it. So final thing from me, if you want to watch the video version of this interview and all our other interviews, make sure you head over to Rob Moore on YouTube, subscribe, and enjoy watching loads of video content. So let's just get straight into the interview with billionaire, serial entrepreneur, Jeff Hoffman. But remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything.
0: Hi, it's Rob Moore here
1: and welcome to the Disruptive interview with Jeff
0: Hoffman. Jeff, thanks for joining us on the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me today. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yes, and me too, me too. So I want to get straight in if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Um, To anyone watching and listening I think you're going to see an amazing story unfold. I know many of you will know, Jeff, and many of you won't. Um, but one thing I want to start with straight away, Jeff, if that's okay, is um, in, in my understanding of your work, you've, you're very experienced in the travel industry. And that is obviously a sector that's been totally, I don't know if you can yet say obliterated, but very hurt by the, the COVID situation. So I'm wondering what's your take on how that industry would survive maybe th-
2: even thrive in these disruptive times? All right, so uh, coincidentally, I had to answer that question on national t- TV in front of millions of people yesterday here in the States. Uh, wow. I do, I do the travel uh, reporting for a lot for Fox News, NBC, and some of the other ones. So we just brought up that very topic and it's bad. It really is. Um, you know, as an example. So before that TV appearance, I was looking up the numbers just to be sure. And the big sites, you know, that I was part of Priceline.com and Booking.com way back when. Um, Booking's uh, revenues are off by like 95% in the second quarter. They're letting go, especially in Europe, um, they're letting go 25% of the workforce. Expedia is down 82%. I mean, Marriott's down there. Their bookings are down like 90 percent. The travel industry is decimated on a global basis. People are not traveling. And what's really tough is we're losing international like Virgin Atlantic just declared bankruptcy. People that international airlines can't stay alive because no one's flying. And the small regional carriers that we count on to get around inside of Europe or inside of any country are all dying. So it's bad right now. Really bad. And
0: what can that industry and, in fact, any industries do to um, reinvent ourselves or move beyond this challenge?
2: Well, you know, that is exactly the challenge that I would absolutely love to talk about for entrepreneurs uh, and small business owners everywhere. I, I have come up with this thing I call my three R's, uh, repurpose, retool and redeploy, um, because I've been talking to literally thousands of small business owners all over the world and entrepreneurs since COVID happened to answer that. Before before we do that though, you know, for your audience in the entrepreneurial space um, for those big companies, there's no easy answer. If you're an airline or a hotel chain, I'm talking about the big ones now. Um, uh, I guess the good news is that they're slimming down, right? They're making their operations more efficient. So later, that should help in cost reductions for all of us. I'll just give you a quick example. I know in the US, Delta Airlines operating costs used to be $100 million a day to run Delta. It's down to $27 million a day. So the only thing they can do is streamline their operation and hang on. They don't really have another business offering except to fly you around. But for the rest of us, um, I think if you want to talk about it, uh, this is a time of reinvention. This is An opportunity, actually, not just a problem. It's an opportunity to reinvent your business, to take advantage of what everybody's calling the new normal. And some smart and innovative leaders are jumping all over that and already doing well. Mm.
0: So um, I have a lot of startup entrepreneurs and scale-up entrepreneurs who follow me. And if there's one thing they say regularly is, oh, well, I'm, I'm disadvantaged compared to my competition. They've been doing it longer. They're more experienced. And I was saying to them, well, look, this lockdown and this maybe disruption is now the lean, agile startup entrepreneurs' great big advantage because, in a way, it's leveled the field. And the big players who aren't as lean and aren't as agile and only have one business model and can't move or pivot, like you said, many of them are in a lot of trouble. But the lean, agile entrepreneur, surely this is now an age for them to step up and really grow their business.
2: You are 100% right. As a matter of fact, Uh, disruption, your word, Um, disruption and chaos should be the alarm clock for an entrepreneur. When disruption and chaos happen, that alarm should have you jump out of bed and say opportunity is everywhere. And you're absolutely correct that those big companies that have been there longer than you and bigger than you, they can't move. They're not as agile as you. So this is the time to reinvent. And this is the opportunity for the little guys, the startups and the scale-ups to take huge market share uh, because they can adapt to the new conditions way faster than those big companies get. So I think that people should be, as much as all the you know the the, the horrible negatives of this moment in history with COVID, there's also the positives, which is that it's just filled with opportunity everywhere uh, for the people that move fast. Mm.
0: Completely agree. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna change tax slightly here, Jeff, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, now, I understand growing up you had some trauma and you lost some people close to you and I wonder if that in any way defined your entrepreneurial journey so would you mind going back and taking us towards the start of your entrepreneurial journey and if any of that traumatic part of your upbringing uh, you know if it maybe fueled you as an entrepreneur
2: it absolutely did um but and it, it uh, let's just say it accelerated. It poured gasoline on a fire that was already started, um, but it absolutely accelerated. And I'll, I'll kind of explain how when I grew up. So I was already driven by and, and this is what I, I want. All entrepreneurs, you know, be dri- driven by some greater purpose besides just starting a business and making money. And it turns out, you know, if there's one thing I've learned, it's that entrepreneurs driven by passion and purpose, far outperform the ones driven by paycheck. If all you're there to, to do is make money, then the times when, which we all have these, when you're not making money, when the tough times and the lean times, the time like now and COVID, those are the entrepreneurs that quit because they're like, I came here to get rich. I'm not getting rich. I'll go do something else. The ones that are driven by some greater goal, there's a reason they became an entrepreneur and started a company. You can't stop those people. So for me, mine was um, early on, I grew up in a small town in the Arizona desert in the United States uh, with a single mom who had four kids and three jobs. Um, so we didn't have anything. And I grew up in a town where nobody ever went anywhere or did anything. I'm not judging those people, right? There's no right or wrong. Entrepreneurship is a DNA thing. You, you got to follow your DNA. But I had these dreams that I got to get out of this town. But what I really wanted to do, I'll tell you what fueled my early journey Uh, was a quote from Mark Twain, of all things. I was uh, reading a textbook. I I mean, sorry, a a book that we had to read for like seventh grade. And in the cover of the book, Mark Twain had a quote that said, travel is the fatal enemy of prejudice. And I remember I was up all night. I was like, what does this mean? What is he talking about? And what I decided was that for me to evolve as a human being, I needed to go see the world. And I needed to, you know, break bread. have dinner in the home of all kinds of people all over the world that didn't look like me so I could become an actual citizen of the world. And that was my goal. Great idea. Told all my friends and everybody laughed at me. Really, dude, who is going to pay you to fly around the world? You're broke and you live in the middle of nowhere. How is it you're going to go see the world? And so I realized that the beauty of entrepreneurship is that we are the ones that get to design our own future. Everybody's hoping for the best. Why don't you just create it? Why don't you just literally design the future you want to have? So my entrepreneurial career, and now you should be less surprised about me being involved in things like Booking.com, uh, was that I wanted to see the world and I had no way to do it. So what I thought was, why don't I just start a travel company? Why don't I create a job where my actual job is to go see the world? And I'll just end that part by saying that my first startup was uh, I had a corporate job and I, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't. So I quit one day and everybody was mad at me because I had a good job with a good paycheck at an engineering firm and I quit. Um, But I couldn't operate in the environment. And I was in an airport, bought a ticket to go see my mentor. Uh, And the lines were an hour long. Back then you had to check in to get a boarding card. And I missed the flight. And I got really upset about the fact that we were all standing in a giant line. So a ticket agent could print boarding cards on a printer. I was like, seriously, this is the process? So I went home and I created a startup, but I'm just telling you this because I created it for two reasons. One, to solve a problem, but two, to enable myself to achieve the same goals all of your listeners have. You want to live your version of an epic life and you want to pay your bills. So I went home and I designed those kiosks. Today, if you check yourself in at an airport at a kiosk, probably anywhere in the world, that was my first invention. And so those enabled me to pay the bills. They're in airports all over the planet now. And they enabled me to go see the world because my actual job every single week was to fly to a different country to install kiosks. Oh, one more thing, though, to be fair, you asked me about loss. Later in life, my absolute closest best friend in the world, Michael, drowned in a freak accident off the coast of Ireland. And I couldn't get off my couch for two weeks. And all of a sudden, all the purpose I didn't care anymore. The office meant nothing. The job meant nothing. Nothing did without having my best friend around to share the world with. And it really made me think. Um, And that fueled the next wave of my entrepreneurial career because his name was Michael. And Michael, I I just have to tell you this. Michael used to say he used to climb um, and he would say, well, even if it wasn't his climbing hobby. He would say to me, hey, let's go do this today. And I would say, Michael, it's Tuesday and we're at work. We'll go Saturday. And Michael would constantly say, well, wait, what if there is no Saturday? And I would roll my eyes and say, there will always be Saturday. And then Thursday would come along. Man, we should go to the park today. And I'd say, I'm at work. We have meetings. He worked for me for a while. Go back to work and we'll go Saturday. And Michael would say, what if there is no Saturday? And <clears throat> the phone call I got from the Irish Coast Guard was a Saturday morning when they called and said, your friend is lost at sea and we never found him. And I woke up that day and I said, what if there is no Saturday? What if they do run out? So that is what fueled me. When I took a break from tech, I started a music company, a movie company, and now a television company, because I was afraid to run out of Saturdays before I had lived out all my entrepreneurial dreams.
0: for any training that we might run. Not only do you get notified first of any launches we do, we also do supporter meetups, supporter dinners, supporter WhatsApp groups where you have a a deeper community. I do supporter only ask me anythings. I do supporter only content and podcasts. We have a community of 2,500 supporters, and I'd love to give you the chance to be one of those. I believe this is the best supporter program in the whole world. Find me a better one, but I don't think you will. So the link is bit.ly forward slash Rob supporter with a capital R. So there's a couple of things I'd like to come back to, Jeff, if that's okay. Um, Yes, I know that's great. This is this is about you, not me. Did I do my research right and found out that you wrote about writing your own funeral in advance? Is that something you've mentioned? That
2: is absolutely. And that happened at Michael's funeral. And I'll tell you why. And, And this is something we should all think about. And I'll tell you what I did at Michael's funeral. His parents asked me to do the eulogy. And I was walking around trying to get ready to do that, right? Hardest talk I've ever given to say goodbye to my best friend. And I was listening to people talk about Michael at his funeral. And when I listened, I was thinking, wait a minute. No, that's not what he was about. You guys, did you even know the same guy? And I started thinking they're all talking and summarizing his life wrong. And he would not be happy right now. So I went and sat down. I had paper because I had a little my eulogy written out. And I took a clean sheet of paper, and this is something I challenge all of you to do. I wrote down on one side, be really honest. If today was your funeral, what do you think people would say about you? And I have to tell you what I wrote down. I wrote down, if today was my funeral, they'd say, wow, he built some great companies, had some big exit, made some money, had a nice house. And I was like, that's what they'd be saying about me. And that would be an epic waste of life, a fail. So then, Write down what you think people would say and then turn the paper over. And this is what I did. Write down what you want people to say at your funeral and compare the two. And what I wrote down was I wanted people to come up and say, Man, my life was a little better because Jeff was in it. He made a positive impact on my life. And then you have a third assignment. Ask yourself, really, are you doing anything that's going to make the backside of that paper true? Are you living a life that people at the end are going to say, That person had a positive impact on me. So it really writing down what I thought people would say at my funeral, writing down what I wanted them, say, and then making a plan to get there changed me completely. Because I said, if I want to be judged by the number of other people's lives I made better, not the number of dollars I made, then I better get busy doing something besides making money for myself. I better Hmm. find a way to improve other people's lives because that's the eulogy I want someone to read about me. And it fueled all the things that I do today. So that's
0: great, Jeff. And if I, um, if I could just challenge something a little bit here, because I've got many friends who are billionaires, spoken to many billionaires on my podcast. And if there's a common thing that every billionaire I've interviewed has said, they've said, well, look, don't make it just about the money. Make it about the passion, the purpose, the value, the vision. But there's a little nagging part in maybe some people who follow me, and maybe in my head a little bit, which says, that's all right for you to say because you're already a billionaire. Now, what if people are listening or they're starting up? You know, they're maybe in a bit of debt. They haven't yet sorted their own finance, finances out for themselves, their family. They've still got their own personal goals. Would you say the same thing? Or is it OK for them to focus a bit more on themselves, you know, make the millions, make the billions and then become more of a, if you like, philanthropist?
2: OK, so two things. Um, <clears throat> it, I'm really glad you brought that up. It is a really bad belief to believe that the only way you can make other people's lives better is by getting rich. It is not just about money. Many of the things that I do today don't cost a dime. It's the time that I give to in my organization to mentor people, to spend time with children who don't have parents or who need guidance, to go out in communities and teach uh, for free to people, teach entrepreneurship, teach people how to improve their own lives. A large percentage of the things we do anybody could do, and they don't cost money. So please don't wait until you've achieved, quote, financial success to be useful in your community. That's the first part. We were doing things in our community when we were broke. I used to go, I'll just give you a random example. There was a nursing home, an old people's home in my neighborhood when I was in my 20s, and I didn't have a dime. And I saw a story on the news about it, how most of the people are dropped off by their families and just left to die. They don't even have visitors. And I was wondering who takes care of them. So I drove by there one day. I was completely broke. And I just asked. And the woman there said, who are you and what are you doing here? She was suspicious. And I said, I just having trouble sleeping, thinking about these people just dropped off here to die. And their own families live in driving distance and don't come. And she said, yeah, it's horrible. And I said, could I do something? And she said, like, what? So I would stop by once a week. I would walk down the halls and I would ask anybody need anything. And I would run their grocery shopping. They'd give me a list and money because they couldn't even walk. And I'd go to the pharmacy. This didn't cost me a dime. So please don't wait. But to answer your question directly, yes, I would tell them the same thing because life happens in phases, right? It is the reason. In fact, since you seem to have done amazing research, I'm very impressed. Um, I... Uh, I didn't make this transition myself. I was focused just on running businesses and and being profitable and making money like a lot of people and getting myself to financially healthy and independent. That was my focus until the day I heard a story about a shelter for abused women going under. Um, And that was a day that they were were evicting all these women and they were all scared to death because the only place they could go was back to the home of the men that abused them. And they were all in tears, and I was watching this on the news. And they said, our, our, we, our mortgage, we didn't pay it, and we're being kicked out. And I was sitting there thinking, man, they should help those people. They should help those women. And that was my life-changing moment, another epiphany moment, because a thought occurred to me. I was sitting there thinking, wait a minute, there is no they. If everybody watching a problem says they should help these people, nobody helps them. So I wrote on my board, the words are still there. I wrote, there is no they, it's you. It's all of us listening. If you see a problem where you live, go do something. If you don't have money, donate your time. But I did have money then. So I was able to pay for the house and provide a facility for abused women in my city that they could stay at for free if they had nowhere to go. And when I went home, I wrote something else on the board. As a matter of fact, the woman that ran the house was on the news. And I did all this anonymously because I didn't want the story to be about internet entrepreneur funds house. I wanted it to be, we need to take care of abused women in our community. So I did it anonymously. And on the news, this woman was crying. They were all crying again, but they were crying happy tears. And she said, it was a miracle. Some guy anonymously came in here and paid for the house. Um, And I went back and I wrote down again on my board, your success is someone else's miracle. So I was no longer ever, in fact, I couldn't wait to start another company, run it really well, become profitable, and help somebody else. So the formula of taking care of yourself, getting economically healthy, and then using the rest of your financial success to help other people is important. But what I'm saying is what you said, you're talking about people that are in the early phase, they have a startup, they haven't made money yet, that's fine. The reason I spend so much time now teaching people how to run a profitable business, and people always say, Jeff, how do you pick the people you mentor? I pick the ones that I believe, if I helped you turn your business into a very profitable, successful business, You would use your success in a ripple effect to affect others. I pick the people that I believe are going to use their success to help, not just buy 10 houses. So you should be thinking that way now. You don't have to give money until you have it, but you should give time as soon as you can.
0: I'd just like to add something to that, Jeff, because I think that's a fantastic answer. And I think people think, like you said, they think of life in stages. And almost like they can only do one thing and not another thing. So it's like, well, I've got to get out of debt and then I've got to make some money and then I've got to build a successful company. And then I can set up a charity and then I can be a philanthropist. Um, But actually, um, you could um, set up a a charity or an organization to help other people right now. Why not? I set up my um, foundation at 36 years old. Most billionaires set them up when they're 60 or 65. So I thought I'll go early. Also. Um, In the world of social media, where everyone wants a million followers and a million subscribers. For years, people have been asking me where I buy my watches. Many of you may know I'm a watch collector, I'm a watch investor, and those as an asset class have done me very well in the last 15 years. I have never shared where I source my watches from or my watch dealer until now. My watch dealer used to be a professional footballer for Manchester United, and he formed a watch brand called Broadwalk. And please don't share this, but his number is 07496 878 153. Obviously, only message him if you're serious about buying and investing in the higher-end watches. People have been asking me for years, and for the first time ever, you can get access to my watch too. Um, Yes, you could have a video that goes viral and has 10 million views. But actually, a phone call for 15 minutes to one person who's struggling, who you pick up off the floor and give them some hope and inspiration. I really believe that you help the world one person at a time. And often we're thinking of scale and growth and, you know, the the reach that we get. Um, But, you know, three or four phone calls a day to help people every day. I think you, you build a legacy of helping people one individual at a time.
2: I am so glad that you said that. Uh, In this world, like you said, where people are trying to build numbers that are meaningless, you have whatever a million people that follow you that don't know you that you've never spoken to, you've never done anything. I'm not saying that's bad. You may have inspirational words that are helpful to them, but it is much more powerful to do what you said—to actually be positively in somebody's life um, and make a real impact. So, I completely agree with you. In fact, right now we're doing a program. That we're doing out of my organization, uh, Global Entrepreneurship Network, and a a small business resource uh, company that are friends of mine called Hello Alice. But we teamed up in the US, the smallest entrepreneurs are dying right now. Two million small businesses closed in the second quarter in the US because of the COVID pandemic. And these people literally can't feed their family. They might have a restaurant or something that's been passed down for generations and it's closed permanently because of COVID, and the families can't eat. So, we just started our own program, and we are handing out, but we dig in deep. We ask them, the, these entrepreneurs to tell us their story, tell us about their family, tell us how they 're living, tell us how they grew up and we 're handing out ten thousand dollars cash, not alone, not the government 's money we 're doing this privately we 're giving out ten thousand dollars to as many families as we can when we hear the family's story, and we 're giving it to the people that need it most. If ten grand in cash will help keep your family alive during this Pandemic. It is extremely meaningful to us to be able to impact each one of those families. That isn't millions of families. It's thousands of families. But I'd rather be able to actually help, real help, to smaller numbers of people, like you said. Uh, And and you know, some of you might have seen that because my friend and partner in this is Pitbull, the singer. And uh, while Pitbull, as a rapper, has ninety million social media followers we uh pitbull and i do these grants we do one family at a time Mm. um so thank you so much for saying that because it's more important to give quality time it doesn't have to be money but money or time uh to people that you can actually engage with and help than it does to post a photograph that millions of people see that doesn't help them feed their family Mm. amen
0: right let's change it up a little bit jeff thank you it's been great so far um What do you believe is at the heart of entrepreneurship and how would you define entrepreneurship?
2: So uh, another great question. So glad I'm here with you today. You're asking all the stuff that I love to talk about that I think is important. I honestly would have renamed entrepreneurship um, if I could now. And here is why. Too frequently when I ask people, you want to be an entrepreneur? You know what they tell me? They say, no, I don't know how to build apps. And I'm like, wait, who said this had anything to do with apps? And they said, well, I don't know how to create a website. And I was like, who said entrepreneurship had anything to do with tech at all? And the reason that they think it's only tech is because, at least in this country, if you said name a famous entrepreneur, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, pick them, they're all tech, right? Whoever you would name, um, Elon Musk, they're all really in a tech space. And so we forget the fact that Entrepreneurship is about agriculture and farming and medicine and fashion and all these other fields. So, I would rename uh, entrepreneurship to self determination. Entrepreneurship is not a job, it's a mindset. And it's the mindset of saying, I am going to change the future. I'm going to change my future and I'm going to change the future of people around me, maybe even the world based on how big your product or service goes by creating a product or service that changes the way things are done. So entrepreneurship is about self-determination. And you asked, what's at the heart of it? The heart of it is two words, problem solving. So many people come to me with solutions that are looking for a problem. They say, Jeff, I invented this, right? And I'm like, what is that thing? And they tell me and I say, who's going to buy that? And they say, well, hopefully somebody, I think it's a good idea. And I'll push it out in the world and hope somebody buys it. Meanwhile, that same inventor is driving through town that day complaining about some problem, right? You heard mine. I was standing in line at the airport, and I could not get on my flight because the lines were an hour long check-in. So in next time you see a real problem in the world that bothers a lot of people, stop and say, should I complain like everybody else? Everyone in the airport was complaining. I was the one that said, I'm going to stop complaining. I'm going to fix this one. Next time you find yourself, a friend of mine, Lars, um, Lars is Danish. Lars was the guy that kept getting lost in his car in the days of paper maps and all, asked all of his friends and everybody hated paper maps. And instead of complaining and throwing the map out the window, Lars sat down and said, I think I can fix this. And he's the guy that created Google Maps. He created the technology. Google didn't. They bought it from him for like $1.1 billion, if I recall. Solve a real problem that a lot of people in the world has, not some idea you have that you hope people will like. They're already complaining about something, and you might be too, right? The person that created uh, Pandora, the music app, didn't create it for you. He was telling me he created it because it was really hard to find songs that he liked. So he wrote some code to help him find better songs, and now lots of millions of people use it. So that's it. It's about self-determination, designing a future for us all to live better in. And it's about solving real problems, not things you hope people might think are a problem and buy your product.
0: There's a lot of influencers out there, especially in the American space, that talk about the hustle and grind. They talk about the hard work, the sweat beats regret. you got to do 15 hours a day for 10 years to be an overnight success. Yet you've quoted here as saying, focus on solving problems, not being busy. So what are your thoughts on being very busy and hustling and, you know, committing your whole life to being an entrepreneur, maybe at the sacrifice of your family, your children, et cetera, versus solving problems and having maybe more balance? And is there such a thing as work-life balance for an entrepreneur? Okay,
2: let's 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 address both of those uh, in that order. Um, Entrepreneurs always brag about how many hours they work. I'm an entrepreneur, man. I never sleep. I work around the clock. This is not a badge of honor. This is a badge of inefficiency. Do you know what? If I was going to brag, I wouldn't brag about working around the clock. I would brag about the fact that I figured out how to do in two days what all my friends took a whole week to do. The goal should be to work so smart and create solutions to problems that are so clever and so efficient that you can finish your whole week by Tuesday. And spend the rest of the time surfing or shopping in London or walking around with your family, just being home and being present. So here's the difference. Is the grind and the hard work important? Absolutely. But here's the subtle difference I'm gonna make. Entrepreneurs are the ones that will do that when they have to. When I was on the way up and launching things, there were times where I spent, I didn't do an all-nighter and I didn't do a two-nighter, I did a three-nighter. I didn't go home for three days in the office. Right. I walked to the, there was a gym down the street. I snuck in and showered and snuck back. I wasn't even using the gym. I slept on the floor of my office because I was onto something and I just knew it and I had to finish it. So the difference is the grind, when it's time to grind, grind. But your goal the whole time should be having one eye open to saying, man, if I could figure out how to do this next time in a day, instead of those three days round the clock without sleeping, I'm going to do that. So don't be proud of working around the clock. Be proud of finding ways to get work done, building systems. If you think about a system like Booking.com, the idea of the business model was what if we could build a business that just the cash register till goes ding, ding, ding while we're at the beach, right? Create a business that's so well-designed and so efficient that you're not grinding anymore. So you're putting in the grind when you have to do that, but you're trying to design a life where the ultimate win, it isn't really the money. Sometimes people are, I I have billionaire friends who are slave to their money. It's freedom. I never wanted to get rich. I wanted to get free. I wanted to not have to take anybody's crap. I wanted to do the things I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to take the day to go help somebody, right? One person and help their family or whatever, all that stuff. Does require economic independence. But I wasn't, it wasn't things that I was really wanting early on. It was freedom. And yes, freedom takes money in many cases. But I wanted the freedom to have my week my way. That's what you should be fighting for. So that's the first part. Um, You grind when you have to, but you design a life where you don't have to do the amount of work everyone else does and you're still more productive than them. Um, The other part wait, what was the second part of your question? And the work-life balance quandary. Yeah, Yeah, so um, here's what I think. Um, You will never achieve, quote, balance, so stop worrying about it. What I mean by that is no one has a perfect life. No one is good at everything. So quit holding yourself to that standard. You're stressing yourself out if you are believing that I'm supposed to hit some magical, mythical balance. So here's what I think. You just do the best you can. And as long as you are doing the best you can, you'll have a really good life. A pretty darn good life is good enough. Stop striving for perfect. And let me tell you something that I do. And it came, I, I won't bore everybody with the story, but you might have heard it since you did your research, because it came from a car engine that I heard humming. And I understood when and asking the mechanic that the reason the car was so silent was because every gear every piston, everything in that engine was working in perfect harmony then. And he told me, when an engine is in perfect harmony, we call that resonant frequency. And I went home after talking to this mechanic and I said, man, what's my resonant frequency? What makes all the gears of the engine of my life hum as efficiently as they can so I'm in as best shape as I'm tuned the best I can? So here's an exercise you can do. This is what I did. I went down and I said, what are the gears of my life, right? If you think of it as mathematical equation, it's the quality of life equation. What are your variables? So here's what I wrote down. Uh, financial health is one. When you're broke and you can't pay your bills, you're stressed. Financial health is one of the gears of my life. Spiritual health, mental health, physical health, relationship health. How's my health with my family, my parents? How's your health with your significant other, your children, if you have them? How are you doing with your friends, Right. How are you doing on goals of yours like you were going to learn Mandarin this year? What are all the gears of your life? I wrote them down in a row, all on the wall. And then I left them there. And what I do is I think about them like a car engine. I look at those things, and they're never all green. The dashboard is never perfect in your life, especially when you're an entrepreneur. What happens is I look, and let's just say this one. At this moment, the parent's light is flashing red because I kind of yelled at my mom Saturday and I haven't apologized. So it's on the board. So what I say is right now, I need to leave the office and drive over to my mom's house and I need to fix this one. Work is not more important than mom right now. But then when I get back, something in the office is flashing red, right? (laughs) And so I run down the hall and fix that. But then I'm exhausted and I'm eating bad. So you know what's flashing red today? My physical health meter. So I say, you know what, man, I got to start working out in the morning and I got to start bringing food to lunch and not eating in that cafe. You're never going to have perfect balance, but you're going to look if you're conscious of the things that make you happy and you constantly stop every Friday, I go through that list and I say, what do I need to, who do I need to take care of this weekend? And everything goes up and down and I just do my best to keep it as close to the middle as I can. Good enough. Trying your best. And doing well enough is okay. Stop trying to be perfect. In your book,
0: um, the sub headline is seven proven principles to grow your company. So I'd love to hear about what those proven principles to grow a company are and, and for you to um, shamelessly plug your book. Because I, I have lots of followers who love reading and love listening to audiobooks. They're hungry for them. So, yeah, it'd be good to know what some of those proven Let's principles
2: are. Let's just do grow. a couple of those. Um, the uh, uh, my co-author David Finkel and I wrote this book to answer the question we kept getting asked. Um, people kept keep saying the same thing to me: uh, business owners, if they're you know new, uh, whether they're a startup or a scale up, whatever level they're at, they're trying to get to the next level, and they keep saying, "I'm stuck. What should I do?" People keep saying to me, "I'm stuck. I'm working more hours than I've ever worked before, and my growth has stopped." Right. We launched this company, we got up to 6 million euros in sales, and we've been at 6 million for three years. Yet I'm putting in more time. I'm stuck. What do I do? And so, you know, I was blessed to be part of uh, multiple companies that scaled globally. Uh, We had companies uh, that do business all over the world that were startups and became multi billion dollar companies. And so, looking back, uh, what I did was say, what are, I wish I'd been smart enough to know this stuff going forward. I would have gotten there quicker. But what I did was I looked back and say, what worked? What were the things that we did along the way that actually made all of this work? How did we get here? And so that's what scale is. It's the seven things that you have to get right if you want to scale a company. So let's pick a couple of them. One of them um, is this. You can't scale until you can get out of your own way. What I mean by that is you can't scale until you as a founder or leader or CEO, whatever you are. You as a leader can't scale until you can let go, and you can't let go until you can empower and trust, and you can't empower and trust until you surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. When you come in the office, and instead of saying, I'm going to tell Angela what to do, your first thought is, man, I don't know how that works. I got to go find Angela and ask her. That is the day of your evolution, that (laughs) you've evolved as a leader when you recognize Just because you are the CEO does not make you the smartest person. In fact, when I started spending time hiring people, as a matter of fact, one of the things in the book that I tell people to do is schedule days to go out of the office and hunt for talent. Uh, The most talented people in your industry, they're not going to come to you because they're not looking for a job, right? You know who responds to your job posting? People that lost their job and need a new one. You know who doesn't respond to the job you're posting? the best person in the industry, because not only do they have a job, but everyone else is calling them. So putting in the effort to go find talented people and spend the time trying to convince them to join you is worth it. So we didn't scale until I surrounded myself with people smarter than me, and I got out of their way. I would ask Angela, not tell Angela. She ran customer service for me. Uh, and, and I would say, if you need me, I'm down the hall. If not, I'll stay out of your way. If you need lunch, I'll run and get it for you. Whatever it took to take care of Angela, because she was amazing. He ran customer service for four companies that I built. So there's one. Surround yourself with people smarter than you. Lead from the bottom and not the top. And dedicate time to hunting for talent and taking care of it, not running the company all the time. Um, <clears throat> let's, uh, let's see. Let's do another one. Well, I'll do another one that's really good, and, and then we'll move on. Um, here's one, which is about operations. Um, and it is my sell more flowers thing. Um, and I learned that from a a guy that he and I were giving a speech at a big conference and he had a little flower shop in New York and one florist, he was a tiny business, like many startups. And at that point he had grown, his company is called 800 flowers, but it became at that point, the world's single largest volume seller of flowers. He went from a tiny little shop to the world's largest seller of flowers. And I said, uh, how did you do that? And he said, come visit my office. And he taught me a really important thing that, that is also in the book. He taught me this. They would, he would walk down the hall and he would, he would say, well, ask yourself this for your listeners. What is the one fundamental thing that makes your business happen? His was when somebody buys a flower. Okay, Ours was when somebody lays their head on a pillow in a hotel room, we get paid. We got to get butts in beds. He's got to get flowers on tables, right? So that's the first thing is be really clear about the simplest thing that drives your business. Then he would took me to his office and he would walk around and he would ask people what are you doing right now and they would tell them. And he would say, how does that sell more flowers? And if they couldn't answer it, he would say stop what you're doing and go do something else. So I implemented that. And and I wrote, you know, butts in beds, right, when we were selling hotel rooms for a living. And I would ask people, what are you doing right now? And they would tell me, and I'd say, and exactly how is that going to get more butts in beds? And if you can't answer it, you need to find something else to do. And what happens is you get a really efficient company where no one is doing anything except the most important tasks. You prioritize that way. And by the way, um, one last thing, my employees have the right, it doesn't matter that I'm the boss, the CEO. If I say, hey, Rob, will you do me a favor? Could you run down the hall and do this? Rob can say, actually, no, Jeff, I'm not going to do it because I can't figure out how it sells more flowers. So you shouldn't do it either. That's our culture. If somebody, anybody, including me, can't explain. Um, So that is how we got really efficient operations and stopped doing all these things that you're doing just because you've always done them and you're not even sure why because you haven't questioned them. Mm. There's two out of the seven things. That's great. That's great.
0: I'm always fascinated, Jeff, as to why people sell their companies or sell shares in their companies. And I understand you sold, um, was it to
2: Amex? Yes, the first company, we, we sold the company to American Express, correct.
0: Yeah, so can you tell me, was that a vision? Uh, what was the reason for selling? Was it a, a decision you enjoyed or didn't enjoy? Um, was it, um, for example, I've got a friend in the UK who had the biggest um, online retailer of childcare, you know, um, push chairs, et cetera, the biggest one in the UK sold it for big money. The day after, he said it was one of the worst things he ever did. And that surprised me when he told me. So could you just talk us through um, why you sold? Was it a good decision? What was your experience selling? Was it a vision or was it an action?
2: Absolutely great question. Um, here, do we have time for me to tell a little story that made me think about this? i year here all day. during okay. this. Um, uh, so I had a mentor. Um, and my business mentor uh, always told me, he was a business mentor and not a life mentor. He was very materialistic. And he was the bad example that you talked about that he ultimately did sacrifice his family. You know, his, his kids, basically, one of them ran away from home because all he cared about was the business. His wife left him. He taught me. He did serve as an example, just a bad example. He reminded me of what I did not want to be like when I grew up and what price I was not willing to pay to succeed at business. But he did teach me a lot about business during the time that, that that we were together. He was my investor in a company. Anyway, here's the story. He kept telling me, I said, why do you work so hard? I kept trying to tell him, it's costing you your family. And he said, well, I have a goal. Um, and then I'll stop. I said, what's your goal? And he said, I hate to say this because it's not my style. He said, I'm going to have the biggest yacht of anybody I know one day. So One day after he's lost his wife, his kids, his friends, everything but his money, he's sitting alone in his castle. And he calls me one day, says, Jeff, fly to Miami. I was like, man, I don't want to fly to Miami. I'm busy launching something. He said, just do it. And I just do me this one favor. So I fly to Miami. A car picks me up, drives me to the port. And there it is. There is a yacht, a boat that dwarfs all the other boats. And he says, get on. And I was like, how long do I have to stay? He said, see, I told you I would do this. I told you all this was worth it. Now I have the biggest boat in Miami. And so we go out in the boat and we sail around and we're looking down. That's what he wants to do. So he can look down on everyone else's boat. I said, can I please go home, right? This is very distasteful. It's not my thing. I just want to get off the boat. And he said, fine, I'll take you back. But I just want you to see that I did it. I have the biggest boat. We're pulling into the harbor in Miami. And as we're doing that, All of a sudden, the sky gets dark, and I was like, man, we just beat the storm. It's a good thing I wanted to go home so fast because we'd be in the rain. And at the same time I said that, the thought occurred to both of us. Wait a minute. There's no clouds in the sky. How can it be about to rain? So as we both turned around, the moment happened. (laughs) Behind us was a yacht so big it blocked the sun. (laughs) It was towering over us. And I looked up at this giant boat, and he looked up, and he said, get off the boat. I have to go back to work. And I said, oh, my God, how big of a boat do you need? So now I'll tell you why I'm telling that story. When I was driving home, I asked myself the question, everybody building a company and thinking about eventually selling it should answer, how big of a boat do you need? And the reason that I asked that is, what is your goal with this company? Do not buy into the myth that every company you start, you have to make it last 20 years or as long as you can and milk every penny out of it. It says who? Who made that rule? So, I asked an entrepreneur that. I said, How big of a boat do you need that I was mentoring? He said, Honestly, my last startup failed on $400,000 in debt, and i like to have a couple hundred grand in the bank. And I, he said, If I could pay off all my debts, make everybody whole, and had maybe 200 grand in the bank, I could breathe. I said, So, the boat you want is 600 grand right now? And he said, Yes. Somebody called him and offered to buy his company for a couple million dollars. He said, First thing he said was, man, if I kept it three more years, I could get more. And he said, if I kept the company five years, I'll bet I could get twice that amount of money. And I said, or COVID could happen, not really those terms, right? Or you could get hit by a bus or, or, an or, you don't know. I said, the whole reason we wrote down what size boat you need is so you would see it when it sailed up. You need a $600,000 boat, take the deal. You wound up going on with $900,000. Buy the boat that you wanted, right? Be happy. Take the next year off to be with your family, travel, be with your kids, whatever, and then start something else. If your next boat's bigger, that's up to you. Your next boat might have nothing to do with money, but you need to know why you're doing this now so that when the deal comes, you don't say, I can't sell my company because I know I could get more. If the amount that's on the table is the amount that you were looking for for this company, take the deal. And if you're a good... I've done eight startups. If you're a good, de- a good entrepreneur, you'll have another one, and it might be 10 times. The biggest one I was ever part of, Priceline and Booking.com, was the fifth startup I was part of. So if you're good at this, it'll get better. Don't be afraid to take a deal if the deal meets your needs, which isn't going to happen if you don't know what your needs are.
0: I love the story. I'm still going to ask the question again. So
2: why did you sell? Um, oh, I sold because I had that same thought process. What was I trying to do? Where was I trying to get to? Does this company have to last the rest of my life? How much do I think it's going to grow? How often is a Fortune 500 company going to say, we love your little startup and we'll pay you well for it? I just made a list of all those things. On one side was my boat. Where was I trying to get to? And I had an idea and it wasn't, it wasn't massive, but I knew what size boat I knew I wanted. I wrote things down. Right. College funds for children. If you're going to have daughters later, put aside money for their weddings. Take care of your parents. Take care of your siblings. I made a list of all the things I'd want to do. Have this amount of money that I would be able to donate to charities. Have this amount of money. So I made a list of things I wanted to do that were based around it. Time I wanted. All those things. I wanted some time freedom. I wanted to do a little travel. When I wrote it all down, I said, what do you want to do with your life? At this moment, not for the rest of your life, for the short, near-term few years. And then on the left, I said, does this acquisition offer enable that? And I said, it, it does. And the, only, the one thing that's certain is if I take this deal, here's what happens to my life. The thing that's uncertain is what happens if I don't take it. I don't know if I get another offer. I don't know if the company gets 10 times bigger or, or fails after this. But it met my requirements, so I took the deal. I said, you know what? And I did have friends saying... You should do this for 10 more years. And I was like, right now, everything I want is on the table in front of me. I'm going to take it. I'll just start another one after I take some time off. So I took it because it checked off every box on my list. And it did that because I actually wrote down the list.
0: Great. So I'm going to ask one more question, and then we're going to go into the quick fire round. You can take as long as you want, Jeff, but that's just a little sign that if you finish up soon, you can. Um, One thing I'm seeing more and more, in the most successful people define it how you will that i interview is um curiosity they are very curious individuals and i believe that you think that curiosity is a a trait that's interesting in entrepreneurs what are your thoughts on being curious
2: yeah so uh (laughs) uh that the perfect one to end on uh, before we do the lightning round because I got this question long ago when I first started, when I quit my job, when I was broken, unemployed, and I started becoming an entrepreneur. And I started looking at researching and listening to, right, this is why I love podcasts like yours, because I want to learn from people. I um, and I want to learn from people that already did what I want to do. And so there weren't people like you doing what you do, my friend. That's why I'm here. Uh, so I didn't have any help. So I said, well, I'm going to try to study people that were successful. And <clears throat> this was the question I was asking myself. What are the world's most successful people? Whatever your definition of success is, whatever everybody has their own heroes. What is it that they are doing that everybody else isn't? They must be doing something different or we'd all be them and we're not. So that was the question. And one of the first things that I noticed uh, was that they have this deeper well they fed everybody has curiosity the difference is they fed theirs instead of ignoring it so in fact it was really cool because uh saturday i did a live event uh with some really cool uh friends and heroes uh vint surf vint is considered the father Vince the guy that invented the internet right um we had nolan bushnell he invented a little thing called video gaming when he founded atari um i was in manchester and london not too long ago with um Uh, Wozniak, Steve Wozniak from Apple. And there's a common trait that all of those people have. And that common trait is curiosity. And so when I started watching them, and here's how it plays out. And here's, I'll close with a technique for everybody. The way that it plays out is that, let's say that you're in healthcare. What do you do all day? You do healthcare, right? Because that's what you do. And if I asked you to come with me to a conference on the banking industry, you'd be like, why would I go there when I'm not in banking? I'm in healthcare. You spend all your time on healthcare. But what these people do, most successful people, is they create time to let their curiosity, it's contained, run wild. So I created a technique that I'll share with everybody uh, that I call info sponging. That that term doesn't mean anything. I just made it up. But it's emulating curiosity and releasing it. What I do is for the first 15 minutes of every day, um, because again, I notice these successful people schedule time to let their curiosity go. So for the first 15 minutes of every day, here's what you do. You are not in healthcare and you do not work for your company. Whatever industry you're in for 15 minutes every day, if you can't do this daily, do it once a week at least for 15 minutes, you're not in your industry. You're not at your company. And the challenge of info sponging is to learn one new thing every single day that you don't need to know. And so, because that's what I observe them doing, studying something in some other industry. So when I info sponge, I go online and just follow your curiosity and I read one story from some other industry. Um, It might be online. It might be a magazine. It might be a TV show. It might be a book. Absorb one piece of knowledge a day that you would never have looked at if you weren't forcing yourself to learn one new thing a day. Then what I do is I write down one sentence of what I learned and I'll sort of show you how those pieces fit. Um, And if you think of every new piece of knowledge you acquire as a puzzle piece, if I, if I gave you a piece of a puzzle and said, what is this? You'd say, I don't know. You gave me one blue puzzle piece. If I gave you two or three, you still wouldn't know. But if you collected a piece out of that puzzle box every day and moved them around your desk, one morning you'd call me up all excited and you'd say, it's a castle in the British countryside. I see what's forming here. That's what the world's most innovative people do. They see what's coming next, the opportunity before everybody else they're collecting bits of information from the entire world and assembling them in a way nobody ever has before. Uh, the example I'll end with, um, well, I won't even use one of ours. I use a, a very visible one. Uh, this guy's name is Travis. And Travis uh, was looking at the, what is the sharing economy? He didn't know what that was at the time. There was this thing called the shared economy when it came out. So he studied that and wrote down something. What is the shared economy? And then he was looking at something called task-based freelance work. There were these new online, instead of a job, there were these new online trend where somebody could just give you an assignment and you could make a little money doing that. Then he was looking at micropayments, the way we could use our phone to send small amounts of money to each other without credit cards, right? Then he was looking at um, a story about side hustle. A lot of people wanted to make a little side hustle money. Then and only then, did Travis look at the transportation industry? And Travis combined all the elements I just told you to create Uber. If you were looking at taxis and someone said, if you were looking at the industry and you said, I'm going to start a new taxi company, what's the first thing they tell you to buy? How about a taxi? (laughs) But how about creating Uber, the world's largest taxi company that doesn't own a single car? He got that because he looked outside of the industry and he combined ideas from the rest of the world. That's the curiosity that I noticed uh, defines all these, my heroes anyway. And that's the idea of info sponging is to let your curiosity run free and learn a new thing every single day. So I just have something, to add to
0: that, Jeff, if you don't mind, because, because something I've learned from people who are my mentors who are more successful than me, people I've interviewed on my podcast over the years. I think there's three elements to this curiosity. One would be humility. One would be asking questions. And another one would be seeing every human being as equal. Um, And I've someone who I've become really good friends with since interviewing on my podcast, probably 18 months ago, a chap called David McCourt. He's a fellow billionaire, um, not fellow of mine. I'm not a billionaire. You are. Um, And whenever we do an episode or a podcast, because we've done quite a few things together, he spends the first 15 or 20 minutes asking me questions. And I'm supposed to be the interviewer. And I'm supposed to be the one asking him. And he's relentlessly asking me questions. And also, I'm in media, social media. He's in media, mainstream media. He's way bigger than me in media. But he realizes that I'm quite good on social media and I have a decent following. And so, one, is he asks questions even when I'm supposed to be asking him. Two, he doesn't see me as inferior to him because he's a billionaire and I'm not. Um, and so I think there's a level of humility in seeing everyone on the same level. I believe you can learn something from everyone, from everyone.
2: That is a per- perfect example of that. The fact that, that he's smart enough to say, what can I learn from you? And he's asking you those questions. I think that is the exact right example. And I agree with you on the humility part. Those mm. people were, were humble enough to admit that the l- list of stuff they know is way smaller than the list of stuff they could still learn.
0: Mm. Amen. Um, Uh, What was interesting today, I just thought it'd be a bit of fun, Jeff. I said to my son today, who's nine, I said, I'm interviewing a billionaire today. And he was like, that's good, daddy. I'm a thousandaire now because he's just got more than a thousand pounds in his bank. So he's on the way. He's very pleased with himself. (laughs) All right, then. um, Quick quick fire round. Are you ready? Yes. All right, great. So what's your biggest win and your most epic fail?
2: Uh, Biggest win? I'm sorry, I just want to make sure I heard you right.
0: Your biggest win in life and your most epic fail, as defined oh,
2: by you? Yeah, so my biggest win in life was uh, discovering... I'm just going to answer it without thinking about it. My biggest win in life was discovering that it's all about people. It's not, you know, life isn't about the journey or the destination. It's just about the people you bring along to travel with. And when I focus more on people, uh, the quality of my life improved dramatically. Biggest fail... Uh, was when I realized that uh, you're not as smart as you think you are. No matter who you are, no matter how successful you are, you're never as smart as you think you are. You're surrounded by people like you and I just said that are smarter than you. And I didn't realize that I believed my own ideas early on. And my my businesses that failed were businesses that failed because I thought they were a good idea and I didn't go ask enough people if they were
0: sure. What's one thing that every entrepreneur should know about
2: money? Um, uh, well, this this is what I would say, that uh, there's no shame in life in making money. The shame in life is in not using it to help others. Um, it is a tool that can improve a lot of people's lives. It's not the only tool, uh, but it's it's an obligation, I believe, and a privilege to be able to improve other people's lives if you are able to do so.
0: If you could spend a day hanging out with three people, that could be... One day, one person, one day, one person, one day, one person, or all three in one day, who would they be and why?
2: Uh, Well, my first one came to mind, uh, oddly enough, was Mother Teresa. Um, She had so many philosophies, like if you can't feed 100 people, feed one. She had the ultimate humility and the ultimate attitude of service. And I would love to listen and learn more from her. About serving others and and being selfless, I, she just did an absolute hero to me. Um, you said three people, huh? <laughs> that is, uh, let's see who else. Oh, uh, one of my favorite quote machines. I told you, Mark Twain. Mark Twain had a way of seeing the whole world and summarizing it in simple sentences, like the quote I told you earlier, when he said, "Travel is the fatal enemy of prejudice." That actually uh, comprised a whole deep set of thoughts that he wrote about. The fact that hate comes from ignorance and ignorance comes from not understanding and not understanding comes from not spending time getting to know people. I want to dig, dig deeper. Um, let's see. My third one. Oh, geez, it just popped into my head. Who? Um, well, that oh, Thomas Jefferson. That's what it was Thomas Jefferson. The same thing when you read his writings. In fact, if you go to the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C., This was a man that in the 1700s said all men are created equal, right? And he talked about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson is a person whose brain I would love to explore because at the time he lived, there were so many thoughts and things that he had uh, that I would just love to dig deeper in. So that's my list for now. Thank you. What's the best advice you can remember ever receiving? Um... <clears throat> the best advice that I ever received actually was from the first mentor I ever reached out to. And here is what he did. He talked, He was giving me advice on communicating. He said, there are brilliant ideas in the world that no one will ever see because they didn't know how to present them. Right? And he said, some of the world's best products will never see the light of day because no one knew how to present or pitch them or communicate them. And some very average products have done really, really well or ideas in the world because they were well presented. So the advice that he gave me was, he said, write down what you're about to tell, tell me. And I wrote it down. And he said, handed me a pen. He said, cross off half the words and, and, and read it to me again. And I did. And he said, did you still deliver the same message? I said, yeah, I guess. He said, do it again. And I crossed off half the words. And he said, does it still say the same thing? And I said, yeah, I guess. He made me do that until it made no sense. I said, OK, now I crossed off half the words and it makes no sense. He said, then back up one page and that's all you ever needed to say. And so I'd done that mentally my whole life. And when I was able to pitch ideas, raise funding, get people, employees, customers, media, they always told me, you communicate really clearly and directly. And it's not because of me. It's because of that advice I was given, which was to slice everything you're going to say in half and half and half and get down to the only words that actually matter. And what's the
0: worst advice you can ever remember receiving? Um, That's an easy one.
2: There is an old (laughs) saying, uh, if you want something done right, do it yourself. You know that saying, right? We all know that. (laughs) Yeah, that was the worst advice because uh, somebody that was running a company when I was building one said that to me. He said, you're the CEO, Jeff. Just get it done. It's your company. Nobody knows how to do it better. Nobody cares more than you do. That was horrible advice. And that led me to failure. And I didn't succeed until I realized that my idea could be made 10 times better by people smarter than me. My way is just my way. It doesn't make it the right way.
0: I'm so glad you said that, Jeff. I'm just going to jump in here because people say that all the time. Oh, if you want a job doing well, do it yourself. (coughs) Learn the jobs that your staff do before you do them. I can't be a coder. I don't know how to use Sage. I don't know how to use our CRM system. I don't know how to do three quarters of the jobs in that company. And if I had to learn them all... Well, I wouldn't, I, don't, I haven't got 50 hours in a day. So I'm really glad you said that. All right. What's one thing that's wrong with the world that you'd like to change,
2: Jeff? Um, <clears throat> right now, <clears throat> you already said it. Uh, there's a lot of really good things about social media, but currently uh, it, it's made people very me oriented, not we. Right. And, you know, we, I fundamentally believe that we is greater than I. And in a social media world where everybody's trying to get likes, that's all about me posting my video, my picture, my whatever, because I want you to like me, like me, like me. Uh, This social media is raising a generation of people that think the more people that quote like you, the better the world is. And you know, if you think there's all this conversation about sites like TikTok, 90% of TikTok is people dancing, right? And stuff like that. It's not anything. So we've evolved to this world where people think self-worth is judged by how many quote followers or likes you have, not by the actual merit or impact of what you're doing with your life. I I wish we could, I hope we don't raise a generation of young people uh, that think if I dance on a screen and get a million likes, then I am a successful person. It's what you said earlier. I'd rather they actually had a positive impact on 10 people in the world and not a million likes and actually did something that counted. I'm not saying that social media is bad. It's important. I'm just saying it's becoming the most important thing. And that's a bad sign. Mm.
0: Is there one person alive today that if we if they were on this podcast or you could introduce us for them to be on this show that you would tune into and listen to straight away?
2: Boy, that's a, there's a bunch of those. That's a really, I just mentioned one of them, by the way. Um, uh, my friend, Nolan Bushnell, he's the, uh, you know, founded Atari, hired Steve Jobs, hired Steve Wozniak, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Nolan is a great one because Nolan talks about focusing on talent more than the idea. Nolan, Nolan wrote a book called Finding the Next Steve Jobs. And he wrote that book because he was focused on find talented people and the ideas will come. And, and an average group of people with a brilliant idea could achieve nothing. A brilliant group of people with an average idea will turn it into something. So I love listening to Nolan talk about how you recruit and find and maintain talent.
0: Great. So we've got two more. In the UK at the moment, there's a bit of a a surge of people saying, oh, we don't need billionaires. No one needs billions of pounds. No one should have billions or be a billionaire. What do you say to that?
2: Um, I actually was in conversation with somebody yesterday. I I don't have his, you would all know his brand, uh, but I I don't have his permission to say his name, so I won't. But uh, has many billions of dollars and said to me, uh, I will give away 95 percent of it. uh, uh, So before he passes. So I know a lot of people like that that have said I know a lot of people that don't. But I also know a lot of people that have said uh, what you said. No one, need, no one needs all this to one person, and there are so many other people in need that they're going to find ways. So I have a group of friends who've all agreed that the answer is to find ways to give it all away and not die with it or not leave it to three children or something like that. So I tend to agree with that, and, and therefore, the focus is on uh, a distributing wealth and giving it away. And, and, and I'm going to be really honest when I tell you there are some very wealthy people I know that I don't see do that, and it kind of disgusts me. There are some people that are wealthy enough to feed massive chunks of the world or or solve problems in the UK or elsewhere, and they just don't. And, you know, they have the right to do what they want, but those are not my heroes. Mm.
0: Okay. This podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. What does the word disruptive mean to you, Jeff?
2: Disruptive means not accepting the way it's always been done, not assuming that just because experts air quotes, experts, people before you did it that way, that that makes it the right way. Don't accept the rules. Don't assume that the people that wrote the books were smarter than you. Um, Leave open the possibility that there might be a better way to do this and give it a shot. Uh, Again, you know, you don't should never feel fear failure. You should fear not trying. So that's what disruptives is all about, is to actually believe even if people are laughing at you, There might be a better way to do this. I see a brand new opportunity and I'm going to give it a shot. Even if all the experts are telling you that's not the way it works. What you should be saying to yourself in silence is, well, it might be soon because I'm going to disrupt this industry. We did that with travel. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were some little startup and people were saying, who are you? right? We have these multi-zillion dollar airlines, hotel companies, big people, way smarter than you, way more successful that you think you can re-engineer the travel industry. And alone at home in our quiet, tiny little office with fold-up furniture, we said, uh, yeah, we kind of think we can. Disruption about is about believing that you might be the person redesigning an industry.
0: Could you let us know the title of your book, Jeff? And where we can follow you and if there's anything right now that you'd like us to see that you're maybe promoting or any, um, yeah, any of your social media
2: platforms. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, the book is called Scale Proven Principles uh, to Scale Your Business and Get Your Life Back. It actually says that on the title because uh, we want you to work two days, not five every week or whatever it is. Um, so that's the book. Uh, I do have a website, jeffhoffman.com. Uh, my email, that's, but that's more about my speaking and stuff, some of the philanthropy. My email, honestly, is just jeff at jeffhoffman.com. I eventually do get to all my emails. It just takes me a while. Um, two organizations that I would mention that I'm part of, uh, uh, but these are in our nonprofit side, um, teaching entrepreneurship to people in the world. One is uh, the Global Entrepreneurship Network I'm chairman of. Uh, that's a nonprofit. It's based in the US, but we do business. We help people start and scale ventures in 180 countries. And that's called Genglobal.org, G-E-N Global Entrepreneurship Network. GenGlobal.org, and the other one I'm part of, is an organization that helps social entrepreneurs change the world in the same kind of thing. I think our entrepreneurs are in 187 countries now. And that is called the Unreasonable Group, named after the George Bernard Shaw quote about all progress coming from unreasonable people. Um, So that's called unreasonablegroup.com. So those are the two activities I spend most of my time in trying to teach people how to to make the world a better place through entrepreneurship. Thanks for having me today.
0: My pleasure, Jeff. Look, we've been one hour and eight minutes. You've kindly given your time. I've never seen, well, I have, but rarely seen so many comments because I've got a social media feed on the right, So many people have said so many great things about you, Jeff. So I just think it's been a real pleasure, privilege. Thank you for sharing your time with us. You've been everything I was hoping for and more. Massive thank you for my following. Thank you. Uh,
2: uh, I forgot my Twitter handle, which is Speaker Jeff. Um, So love to say hello to some people. But thank you very much. And I will continue watching.